Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 as we continue our study through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And we said that the key word that we would describe this book is, is the book is, is the idea of modeling. In other words, to be a model. You are to follow models and you are to be a model. And I think that theme has come through as we have come uh, through these first chapters of this book. Join with me as I read the Word of God this morning, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 2. Paul writes, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. There ends the reading of God's inerrant word this morning. Join with me in prayer before we again tackle this text this morning. Father in heaven, we again pray that you would use your word in our lives, that your Holy Spirit would teach us and open our eyes to the truths of the word, and that you would use your word as you see fit in our lives to build us up, to, to break us down, to correct us, to encourage us. And so this morning I pray that there would be nothing between us that would keep the hearing of your word from being heard. And so this morning I pray that you would remove all distractions, that this, we would confess our sin, that we might be ready to hear from you this morning, I pray in your name. Amen. Well, we've been walking through 1 Thessalonians. And after Paul greets them and, and, and wishes them grace, and he, get, he extends them grace, and we saw that at the very beginning in verse 1, as he gives grace and peace to you, and he says, this is what I want for you. This is what I actually want for you. And in fact, he says, it's not that you don't have it, but I want it to grow and, and to you to have it in a greater extent. And so Paul then writes this letter with that in mind because he, he says if you read this book and if you follow the instructions in this book and if you understand this book, it will contribute to you having God's grace and peace in your life. And so that's what we've been trying to do as we go through this book is to understand it so that we might again grow and, and experience God's grace in our life and his peace. So after that greeting, Paul then began to give thanks, and he gave thanks for the Thessalonians, but he gave thanks not to the Thessalonians themselves, but for God's work of grace in their lives. And he, wanted, he was overjoyed, and again, we understand that Timothy has come, and, come back from, in First Thessalonians, 
uh, Thessalonians chapter 3, that he has gone to see how the Thessalonians are doing, and they're doing well. And so Paul is grateful that there has been a genuine work of grace in their life. God is the one who's moved in their lives. And so we saw, as we went through that section, distinguishing marks of a work of grace. And they displayed these marks of grace that God had truly saved them and had done a true work in their hearts and regenerated them. And so after Paul's initial gratitude to God for his work in their lives, recognizing that salvation is from God and that he deserves all the glory, he starts into chapter 2 and Understanding that Timothy has again come back with a report, he begins to defend his ministry among them. And he makes an apologetic to the Thessalonians that when he came and brought the gospel to them, he came in, in good motives and that he brought it in a godly way. And that he wasn't there to take advantage of them, that he wasn't there to, to somehow give them human wisdom and to deceive them, but he brought them the truth of the gospel and he didn't come with flattering words. He didn't come in greed. He, get, he actually came sacrificially for their good. And so Paul makes this, this uh, defense of his ministry among them. He's not like the worldly philosophers who only sought his own gain, but he came for their good. And so we saw the distinguishing mark of a faithful shepherd. We saw distinguishing marks, I should say, of a faithful shepherd as we went through verses 1 to 12. But then Paul makes a shift here as he goes to verse 13. And he makes a shift and he does something that he doesn't normally do. And we talked about this last week where he, he now makes a shift and he puts in a second Thanksgiving section in this, in this book. Normally he starts out with one, but here Paul again shifts back to Thanksgiving. And he starts to give thanks for what God has done and, and the fact that the word of God has been received or accepted by the Thessalonians. In other words, in many ways, he goes back to that thanksgiving of what God has accomplished in the fact that he has saved them. He now gives God thanks for the working of the word in the Thessalonians' lives. And so as we began this in verse 13, we saw that there was this, this idea here of thanksgiving. And there, and there was in verse 13 that we saw three truths about the word of God. We saw that when the Word of God works and when the Word of God comes, first of all, that it had to be communicated. We saw the proclamation of the Word. In other words, the Word of God needs to come through words. It doesn't come through intuition. It doesn't come through feelings. It comes specifically through words. We said it came through the ear channel was the idea. In other words, they heard it and it came from outside of them. And we, we discussed how God's truth, his divine truth, comes not from inside, but from outside, and it's objective, and it comes through the hearing of the objective word of God. Now, we also said in a caveat that you can read the word of God, but it still is words that are coming from outside you. Then we saw the origin of the word of God, and we saw that it doesn't, 
that it comes from God. It is not man's wisdom, it is God's wisdom. And so it is, it is that word of God that comes and it, it comes and is sourced in God himself. And then we saw thirdly that the, the power of the word of God, or we said the effect of the word of God. In other words, the word of God, when it comes, it is received through the hearing. It is accepted by the believer. In other words, he, he embraces it as true. And then that word begins to perform its work in their life. It, it is transformational. The Word of God has power to change. It has the power to save. It it comes with the Holy Spirit. It is the Word of God that saves. It is the Word of God that convicts. It is the Word of God that shows a sin. And so the Word of God comes with power and it begins to perform a work in your life so that you're not the same. And so after that, Paul now goes here in verses 14 to 16, and he really illustrates that. He illustrates what does it look like to have the Word of God perform its work in your life, and what does it look like when you reject the Word of God? What does it look like when you don't accept it, but you reject it? And he really gives us two illustrations of those who accept the Word of God and its work in their life, and, 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 and a look at those who reject the Word of God, who don't accept it, how they behave, and what, their end, what the end result for them is. And so we'll see these two, really these two pictures or portraits that are here in this, wor- in this Word here today. So first of all, let us look, as we, as we come to this, at those who accept the Word of God, or the reception of the Word of God. And and again, we want to make sure that we understand, when I say reception, we mean acceptance, because we said it's one thing to hear the Word of God, it's another thing to actually embrace the Word of God as truth, as what it is, the Word of God. And so he says, here's the receiving of the Word of God, the acceptance of the Word of God. And he says, for you, brethren, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus. So he begins this, word, this verse with this little word for that points back to verse 13. And we see at the end of verse 13 that phrase, which also performs its work in you who believe. And so he says, the word performs its work in you. And now verse 14 goes on to explain exactly that. How does the word work in someone's life? What does it look like? How, how do we know that it's been received? And, and, and notice this, Paul is saying, this is how I know. He's already said you accepted, you received, you accepted, and it's performing its work. How do we know? And Paul says, this is how we know. This is my argument for how we know that the Word of God is performing its work in your life. He says, we know this because you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Now notice this. This is familiar language. Paul says, I know that you received the word of God and it's performing its work in you because you became what? Imitators. Now if we remember back a few weeks ago, we looked in chapter 1 verse 6. He said, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation 
with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul goes and says, you became imitators and you, be, you be started to follow after Paul and Silas and Timothy. You saw their godly example and you began to follow them. You began to imitate them. And he says, this is the, you received the word. And again, you received it in much tribulation, in much trouble. And you started to, to imitate their godly lives. Now this, again, we remind you that that Greek word here for imitation is, is again the word where we get the word mimic from. And Paul says you became mimickers, you became imitators, and, and, and it has more than the idea of just following someone. We talked about that when we were in verse 6. It's not just that they followed them. It's that they saw them as the example or the standard or the model to which they needed to achieve. In other words, they said, this is what a believer looks like. This is what I must become. This is the mold, you could say. And so they said, this is, this is, we we want to conform our lives to the model that they have set. And so as they watched the Spirit-enabled lives, By the Holy Spirit, they became imitators of Paul, Timothy, and Silas. Or Sylvanus, if you want to use the long term. And this was the view. uh, And so he says, "You, you, you received the word in much tribulation and you conformed your lives. And he says, and, and we said that Paul viewed discipleship exactly in this manner. In other words, you are always imitating right? Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul, Paul is saying, I imitate Christ. You are to follow those who, who follow Christ. And he says, this is really what discipleship looks like. It's imitation, imitation of Christ, imitation of godly people who are around you. God has given you those people to follow. Paul uses this six times in the, it's used six times in the Bible, five times by Paul. And it is, it is central to his understanding of the Christian life. And for Paul, it is just natural that you would be an imitator. If you're a believer, if the word is working in you, you will imitate. You will imitate Christ. You will imitate other godly believers. He doesn't know Christian life apart from that. But Paul says here, this is not just an apostolic imitation. Paul doesn't say, just look at me and, and Silas and Timothy. He says there's actually what we would call uh, ecclesiological imitation or church imitation. He says, actually, th- there's an imitation going on here and you are imitating the churches uh, that are in Judea, the churches of God in Christ Jesus in Judea. And so Paul is not just about imitation about himself. Paul isn't saying, hey, look at me. I'm the only one to be imitated, or me and my buddies. He's saying, actually, there are churches and filled with people who are what? Models for you, standards for you. And he says, these churches here and the individuals in there are the ones that you chose to imitate. These are the standard that you thought was high enough that you needed to imitate. 
And so we see that it's not just that we follow Paul's. It's not, and we're told that Peter says you are to, to follow the imitation, or you're supposed to imitate leaders. And then Peter says, proving to be examples to the flock. In other words, you, the flock is supposed to follow the leaders. But also here now he says, even the people in the pews, not, not just the leadership, but even the people in the pews are, can be imitated as they follow Christ, as they are godly means each one of us can be an example. Now Paul goes on and he says, you imitated, here, here's how I know the word of God is working in you, because you imitated the churches of God in Christ Jesus in Judea. Now as we look at that term churches, and we looked at this before, the word ecclesia, we tend to have a lot of baggage with that word ecclesia, because we, the first thing we think of is, that this means the called out ones. This is, the, this is the Christian church. And though that certainly came to be the meaning of this as more of scripture was written, remember as Paul writes this, he's writing very early on. If my, if my timeline is right, and I can't conceive that it's not, we, the book of James was written in 49 AD. So it's already been on the bestseller list for almost two years since, since the start. At, in, in 50 AD, I would understand that both Matthew and Galatians have been written. And so this is Paul's second book, early, late 50, early 51. So as he writes, there's not a lot of information about the ecclesia. But it is a term that they are very familiar about. It is a term that they understand. And it is a term that is used to describe the coming together of, of, the, of, of a group. In other words, it's, it's used for the calling together of a, by a magistrate or by, by an official to, to call an official gathering together. So the residents of a city would be called together either for a civic reasons, business readings. It could be used of a social gathering. It could even be used of a synagogue. And so the idea there was this assembling together. They were assembling it together. But as he goes on here, Paul now gives us three descriptions to show us that this is not an ordinary gathering. This isn't just some ordinary social gathering. It's not some other religious gathering, but it is a specific kind of gathering. So he says, first of all, they are the churches of God. So he begins to, to limit the, the extent of this gathering. He says, uh, this is a spiritual kind of gathering. It's not a civic one. It's not a business one. It's not a social one. It's religious. And we are gathering and uh, because we are churches that belong to God is the idea. It's a possessive genitive. These churches belong to God. And he says, they belong to the one true God. This is who owns these churches. This is who they belong to. But again, as, we, as, as we're reading here, there, there you could understand that not only do they belong to God, but you might say, well, that sounds like a Jewish synagogue because they're worshiping the one true God. 
Well, he gives us some more identifying marks here because he wants us to make sure we know who these people are. He says, and he describes them as a very kind of Christian kind of gathering. And he says, they are described as being in Christ Jesus. Not just a Jewish gathering. This isn't a gathering of Jews. This is not a synagogue. This is distinct because these people are identified with the one true God through Christ Jesus. They, this is the sphere in which they existed. This is the way in which they, they came to be the church. It's because they came through Christ the Messiah, who was Jesus Christ. Who was Jesus and so they are, are dis, a distinct gathering, one that is, exists in the sphere of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says, thirdly, and now he describes them by where they exist. Where are these local assemblies? They're in Judea. That are in Judea. In other words, there's an ethnic kind of gathering. It's more than geography. And he's trying to make the point that these are Jewish gatherings that are in Christ, that are in God. These are Jewish believers in the region of Judea. And so he's making a very ethnic statement here. These are Jewish believers who are meeting in churches in Judea. It's interesting because it says that are. And the idea is they still exist. These churches are in the state of being existed and in spite of all of the persecution that has come and the storms that have come, they still prevail and they are still there. And Paul says, here are these churches. They are the churches of God in Christ Jesus made up of Jewish believers. Now we're going we're gonna to notice that he says, you were persecuted by your own countrymen a little bit later on here. And you're going to say, it would seem that the church, and we would understand that the church here is made up of Gentiles. They're made up of Gentiles. Why would Paul hold up Jewish churches in Judea full of Jews as an, for, for them to look at? Why would he put the, his, their attention on them? After all, they're Gentiles. What, what is he doing here? Why does he divert that attention? Well, at the time, and, and, and Luke does describe for this at the beginning, a bit in the beginning of the book of Acts, the Jewish Christians' assemblies were the assemblies that had suffered the most persecution. They were the ones who had actually been under pre persecution for the longest and they had suffered the most severe persecution. So Paul is writing this again around 50-51 AD and so as he writes, this is 20 years after Christ's death, I would understand he died about 30 AD. And and so the, church, the Gentile churches have not been facing the persecution for that long. Many of them are fairly new. And what, so it wasn't the Gentile churches that were facing the harshest and the longest persecution. It was those Jewish churches that were founded early on, especially those in Judea. And as we read through Acts, we certainly can see that 
the Jewish church received its share of persecution. As we, as we read through that book, we see the stoning of Stephen. We see the arrest of Peter and John. We see the murder of James. And so this church is under persecution. In fact, they are scattered by Paul's persecution and then ultimately by Herod's persecution in chapter 12. But here is, here is Paul himself, a persecutor of the church. In fact, Romans 8.3, I mean, Acts 8.3 says, But Saul, Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Paul was zealous to go after church members. He persecuted them as a Jew, as a, as a Pharisee. He hated the church. And so indeed, that church is the most persecuted church. They are the ones who have had to endure the longest suffering. They were the ones who were targeted the most. Now you have to understand that in the Jewish community, once you proclaim that you believe that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, that he was, he was the Messiah that was to come, that was the end of your life as a Jew. That was the end of your life. You were ostracized from your family. You were ostracized from the community. And so believers that came in Jesus Christ and believed in him and believed that he was the Messiah to come understood that they would lose their families. They would be cut off from their families. They would be cut off from their social group. They would be cut off from the ability to do business. They would lose their ability to support themselves. They simply would be completely cut off from the community. They lost almost everything when they came to Jesus Christ. And then he says, and he continues to explain, he says, these are the people that the Thessalonians decided to conform themselves to. These are the people that they look to to see how to behave as a Christian. This is how they wanted to imitate. Not that they had met the church, but they had heard about it. How did they follow in the steps of the most persecuted believers? Paul explains and he says, for you endured the same suffering. He says, for you also endured suffering. And this is the basis of Paul uses for recognizing their imitation, that they were willing to what? Suffer. This is how Paul knew that they had and recognized that the word of God had indeed been received. They were willing to suffer. Well, how did the Thessalonians receive the word? How did, how did Paul know that? Well, Paul was there at the beginning of the church. Paul was there who, and he planted the church. And he says, you received the, the word of God, the very word of God, and, they were, and then you were willing to what? To suffer for it. Paul says, you suffered at the hands of your own countrymen. And again, that indicates that the church was primarily thes uh, a Gentile. The word translated countrymen is the word that refers to one member of, a same uh, of the same tribe or people group. 
one who is a member of the same tribe or people group. Now, we understand that Thessalonica was a metropolitan city. There was very many different ethnicities in the city. But his point here is he's trying to make a point between Gentiles and Jews. Now, we're not saying there weren't some Jews that were participating in the persecution of the church because they certainly were the ones who instigated it. But what is clear is that the Gentiles joined in and with enthusiasm carried that persecution on. And so that persecution first came against Paul, and eventually, when Paul was driven out, eventually it turned on the Thessalonians himself. He says, you endured this suffering at the hands of the residents of your own city. We could translate that. And even as the members of the church, even as a church, as a member of the church in Judea, had suffered persecution from their own countrymen. The Jews had been persecuted by Jews. He says, now you are suffering in the same way, the same kind of persecution that is coming upon you. He says, this is the comparison. You are just also, you do it the same way as they do. And you have to think, you have to think you know that this is a work of God in their lives. Because here is a church, here is a church that is six months old. Six months old. Right? We wouldn't even say, how on earth would you even train leaders in six months, let alone have any kind of organization and backbone. And yet here is a church that is so, had the work of the word so strong in their lives that they are now mimicking and reflecting the same kind of steadfast faith that the Jewish church that had been in existence for 20 years was exhibiting. Isn't that amazing? And this is how we know that true genuine work of the word is performing its work in people's lives because it doesn't matter how long they've been saved. When they're saved, they're saved and the word performs its work and people are faithful. And this is why oftentimes we, we, we think persecution is such a bad thing, but it's a refining thing and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a purifying thing and it's a good thing. We know that they faced persecution. We know that when Paul came, when he came to that city, he came and he came from Philippi. He limped into there after being beaten, right? They were in bad shape. They got there. Three weeks, they're thrown out of the synagogue. Next thing you know, they're forced to leave. And so Paul had come into that city and he did what he always did. He went to the synagogues because he knew that there was those who knew the Old Testament. They knew the promises of the Messiah and there was good soil for, for, for an understanding. There was God-fearers there who had also aligned themselves, recognizing that Yahweh was the one true God. And so there was, there was a place to give the gospel. But it wasn't long before Paul was thrown out as they got a mob and came after him. And this was the charge that they made. These men have upset the whole world and have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them and they are 
they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. So Paul has come in and he's given the gospel, and this is what the result is. Now the Jews are part of this accusation, and they're saying that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy have taught something that is contrary to the decrees of Caesar. So what, is it, what does he mean by that? Well, I think it can be two things. Caesar decreed that, first of all, that Caesar was above all else. Another allegiance must go to Caesar above all else. And so it wasn't just a political ideology, it was a religious ideology. In other words, you had to worship him as God first. And so you can imagine when Paul comes in and he preaches the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ and your loyalty is to the Lord Jesus Christ above all else, that is going to go against this. This is going to go against what they're teaching, what, what the community has understood. It's a violation of those decrees. But Paul also taught that Jesus Christ was king, and he also taught that Jesus Christ was coming back to establish a king. And there was also laws and decrees that said you could not predict the overthrow or the coming of a new king while, the, while Caesar was alive. And so that could be very well that as Paul taught his eschatology and said, Jesus Christ is coming back, he is king. They said what? Whoa, he's predicting another king that's illegal. Now, I'm sure the Jews weren't so upset about the fact that there was a new king coming. The fact is they just didn't like the spread of the gospel. And so we would say no stick was a bad stick to beat the new believers with. And so as Paul was there, he was again thrown out. Because his message went against the idea that Caesar was ultimate and against the status quo of what was understood. And this is the, Paul, the, the message that Paul and Silas preached. This is the message what the Thessalonians had received. And this is the, the message that brought persecution on the Thessalonians. And that's the thing. We understand this. We often hear this idea, you need to change culture. You need to change the culture. No, you don't. Because Christianity creates its own culture. In other words, in obedience to the word of God, creates its own culture. And this is exactly what the problem was, and this is exactly what brought persecution onto the Thessalonians. Because the Thessalonians were once part of the social and religious systems that were tied very much together. We, we have a hard time because we have separation of church and state, but they didn't. And the king was a representative of God, and here in Rome he was God, or was supposed to be God. And so when you broke from those traditions and those beliefs, and your loyalty was no longer to Caesar's, you broke up the religious and social circles that were there. And no longer were they part of the group. No longer were they part of, of society. And they were different. And their loyalties were different. And that is always the case with Christianity. It will be counter-cultural. 
And what's interesting here is that what happened was this. The culture will never accept there being a group in their society that's different, especially with the truth of the Word of God. They cannot stand that there is a group that is different. They can't live and let live. They cannot let it go. You must bow your knee to their ideologies. And when you stop being an imitator of the culture, when you stop following along with the ideology that's taking place, the natural response will always be persecution. Persecution will come because the world will not allow you to continue the way you are. Now there's a little bit, I think, of application for us in, in our day and age. Where we think, while well, we can change the culture, we think, well, you know what, we must be doing something wrong because the world doesn't like us. Maybe that's a sign that we're just not loving. Maybe that's a sign that we're not, you know, living our lives like we should. And Paul says, actually, it is a demonstration of your salvation and a demonstration that the Word of God is actually working in your life. And the persecution that it brings by living according to God's principles and living a righteous life are not God's judgment, but they are your affirmation of your salvation. They are the affirmation of your salvation. Paul was clear, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Peter says, this, uh, at the end of his life, well, this is Timothy, I mean, indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. Persecuted. This is a natural response to what takes place. The Word of God, as it works in your life and you live a righteous life, creates contention. You think it brings peace. It brings contention with the unbeliever. It creates contention. I want you to notice one little word at the beginning of this verse. He says, for you, brethren. For you, brethren. Now, Paul doesn't just do this to get their attention, to, to get them to reset. And he's not just expressing this to, to, to express his affection. But he is using this term, and, he, and he's using this term, it's not an arbitrary use of it, and it's, he's expressing an important truth. It is a term of spiritual kinship. It is a term of spiritual kinship. In other words, he is saying to the Thessalonians, now remember, Paul is a Jew. 
He was one who persecuted the church. And now he is saying to other believers, you are my brother. In other words, there is a spiritual kinship that takes place. In any translation that wants to translate this friends, is totally destroying what Paul is trying to stay. We don't need egalitarian Bibles. We need them to be translated like they were written. And he is saying, listen, Thessalonians, you have suffered persecution like the Jews. You have lost family. You have lost jobs. You have lost the ability to provide for yourself. You are isolated. And Paul says, guess what? There is a greater community of believers that you belong to. You are not alone. You are, there is family for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is family for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. It transcends ethnic boundaries. It transcends distance. There's a greater community that you belong to. And Paul now reminds them, actually, you have a new family. It is the family of God, and this is your family. And again, there must have been tugging at the hearts of the Thessalonians as they heard this, the joy to recognize they actually had connections. They had a new family, the family of God. Well, again, application, we would say immediately, imitation. Imitation is a, is a mark of God's work in your life. Are you imitating the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you following godly people? Are you an example for them? That is the mark of the work of God as it performs its work in you because it will, it will naturally change you into Christ-likeness. It cannot help if it is working in you. Imitation also causes you to relinquish past loyalties. You relinquish past loyalties. This one's difficult. But your loyalty is no longer to family. Your loyalty is no longer to your country. Your loyalty is no longer to your spouse. It is to the Lord Jesus Christ and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will remove yourself from the culture. You will no longer be controlled by it, but you will be what? Imitating the Lord Jesus Christ. And your loyalties are no longer to the things that you once had, the things that once drove you, but to the Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, it can cost us family. It can cost us community. It can cost us jobs. It can cost us hobbies. But those are no longer where our loyalties lie. They lie with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this third one, I'm not fond of. I'm supposed to be, but I'm not fond of. A genuine work of the Word of God in your life will produce a willingness to suffer 
for righteousness sake. It will produce a willingness to suffer for the truth. Now here's the thing. It's not that we grit our teeth and go, I'll suffer if I have to. What did Paul say back in verse 6 of chapter 1? Having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. With the joy of the Holy Spirit. For the believer, as one is persecuted for the gospel's sake, and I want to make it clear, we don't take joy in pain. We don't also go seeking out persecution. We don't go to try to find it. But when it finds us, what we find is, is we recognize that this, now listen to this, is the opportunity for us to demonstrate before the world that our loyalty is to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if our priorities is to to please the Lord Jesus Christ, and if he's the one that we live for, then that will bring joy to our heart that we, we are like him. We now are suffering for righteousness sake. As far from seeing it as God being angry or, or a mis- unfortunate set of events, we recognize that God has brought it into our lives to demonstrate our loyalty to him and ultimately to demonstrate to us that we are his and the word is working in us. Well, we have another illustration here. After seeing those who received the word, accepted the word of God, we now see those who reject the word of God. Paul writes in verse 15, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men. Now this portion of scripture, again, he's speaking of the Jews here, has caused a lot of what we would call trouble in church history. People have misunderstood it. People have used it to be anti-Semitic. And it's a difficult text and it's not in many ways, but it's not because of the grammar. It's not because of the language. It's because of the harshness of the tone that, that Paul uses here. In fact, it's so harsh that some churches in their reading simply don't even put this piece of scripture in there. And yet we have to recognize that every word of God is inspired and so it is profitable and therefore we need, we need to understand it. Now we'll notice the nature of that rejection. It says both killed the Lord Jesus, who both killed the Lord Jesus. And he, and he, he starts with this phrase that the Jews here, and we recognize this. I just want to say this off the top. The Jews were responsible for the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we also understand that Judas betrayed Christ. We also understand that the Romans crucified him. Right? We, we know that. We also know that God the Father was responsible because it was, he was preordained by the Father that he would die. So we want to be just a little bit careful when Paul here 
is pointing out that the Jews are responsible, we recognize that they have been opposing his ministry for the whole time that he's been in ministry. And he is simply laying out the facts of what is historical at this point for him without trying to make it as if the Jews were somehow uh, responsible for Christ's death, therefore rejected by God and therefore reprehensible because we know there's a future for Israel. So his point here is not to make Israel out to be completely gone, but simply saying that this Jewish, the Jewish nation at this point is re- has rejected their Savior, their Messiah. Now, the Greek here separates the Lord from Jesus in the, in the, in the, in the original language. There's a verb killed between them. So literally, this, this phrase is, who, I should say, both the Lord killed Jesus. Both the Lord killed Jesus. And in separating them, he is, he is making a very uh, statement like this. This one that came was Lord. He was the Messiah. He was the one to be believed in. He is ultimately God. And you killed him. And that was Jesus. In other words, this man, Jesus, that you rejected was the Lord that was to come. And his point here is that they were making a very personal rejection. It's not that they were just rejecting uh, like the truth about God, but they had a very personal understanding. They knew who Jesus was in the flesh. They knew the one that had been here and they personally rejected him as the Messiah and said, he cannot be. And he says, you killed the Lord Jesus. You killed the one that was to come. And you had a personal vendetta against him. You would not accept him in spite of all of the proof. Peter makes it clear that the Jews did this. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. You rejected him as your Messiah. You rejected the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you were the ones who instigated. Just like you instigated at Thessalonica and continued to do in Berea and all through Paul's ministry, he says you did this to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're the one who pushed him to the Romans who eventually crucified him. He says, not only did you kill the Lord Jesus, but you killed the prophets. And again, I think he's speaking here of the Old Testament prophets. And scripture is full of of the Jews rejecting the prophets. The prophets who brought the word of God, who brought the oracles of God to the nation of Israel, they continue to reject them. Stephen said, you know, "Is is there a prophet that you didn't persecute? Right? Hebrews... They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they were, went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. This is the testimony of the Jews as they responded to God's prophets who brought them the word of God. 
They rejected the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. They rejected the word in the flesh. They rejected the, the word that was brought by the prophets. And then he says, they drove us out. Really, it means to chase out or to drive out. And, and speaking here of, of harsh persecution. And Paul says, listen, you drove us out from Thessalonica. Acts chapter 17. We came, we gave the word of God, you were there. And you drove us out, you persecuted us. And that was the continual testimony of Paul in his ministry. Remember in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says, five times I received, what, 39 lashes. 40 minus 1. From the who? From the Jews. Now I can't imagine that. I can't imagine the, the, the damage that would have been done to Paul's body. And in some ways, we would have to say it was a miracle that he was even alive because of the chance of infection with all of the, the, the ripping of his flesh. But five times, this was Paul's testimony that the Jews continue to re reject the truth and the word about the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, they not only rejected the word of God by killing the Lord Jesus Christ and rejecting the prophets, they continue to reject, and it says here, they are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men. Now, the Jews thought they were pleasing to God. They thought they were God's chosen people. They had a birthright to be pleasing to God, because after all, they were Jews. God had picked them. They're in. They're good to go. In fact, they thought everyone else was displeasing to God. They were the only ones. Right? And Paul says, actually, it's the other way around. Actually, no, they were not pleasing to God. In fact, instead of being pleasing to God, it proves that they were hostile to all men. In contrast to be pleasing to God, they were hostile to them. And the idea of is... is this word has the idea of wind that comes in the face of, of, a, of a ship that is trying to go forward. He said they opposed all men. They opposed every man. Not just, the, not just the prophets, not just Jesus Christ, but all who came in, in, to hear the word of God. And he says, how did they, how did they do that? How, did they, how were they hostile? How did they get in the way? How did they oppose? By hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles. And here's the reaction to the Word of God, and this is, this is so typical. The Word of God does not just produce like kind of like, oh, well, you, you believe that, and we just talked about that. They hated the Word of God so much, and they rejected Jesus Christ so much that they didn't want anybody to hear it. They didn't want to hear anybody to hear the gospel because it wasn't just good enough for them to reject it and even to keep the Jews in Judea. They went to the Gentile areas because they couldn't stand the fact that the Gentiles would hear the gospel. And they didn't want them because he, they didn't want them to hear because they knew the power of the word so that they might be saved. And their objective was to keep these Gentiles from being saved. They didn't want them to be evangelized. They didn't want to hear the gospel. They didn't want God to do a supernatural work in their lives. And so their hatred prevents climaxes and their preventing of the word of God from being given. 
And so they kept his, uh, the, the word of God away and the gospel away from the Gentiles. Romans 1.16, Paul said, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so they kept the very word that could save them and keep them from the wrath to come, and they refused to let them hear it. And so their response to the word wasn't just to reject it themselves, but they wanted to keep anybody else from hearing it. What's the result or the purpose? This construction can either be show result or purpose, and maybe it includes both ideas here. With the result that they were filled up with the measure of their sins. point is, is that at a very well-defined point at which they have reached the limit of their sins. Jesus, the, the Bible in, in Matthew, Jesus said, my spirit will not always strive with men. There comes a point where sin is filled up. And he says, these Jews have continued to reject the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and reject Believing in him till the point where they're what? They are filling up their cup of wrath. They are filling up their sins to the limit. And there's a sense in which God, God is using their rejection and, and the purpose is actually to bring judgment on them. In other words, God intends to judge them. Isaiah 6 speaks of that. God gave Isaiah a commission and he said, you're going to go give the gospel. You're going to give my word to the people. And he says, you're just going to keep on preaching, right? Until what? Until they reject. And judgment will come. Jesus did it in his ministry. He, he gave the truth until a certain point and then he gave parables, right? So that they could not believe that so judgment would come upon them because they did not have ears to hear. And so they have heaped up their sins to the limit, to the full measure, the cup is full. The aggregate of their sin has filled the cup of their iniquities. And we saw this idea back in Genesis 15, 6. If we remember, Israel went into the land in Egypt for three reasons, right? Famine, hungry, right? Uh, number two, they were odious in the land. They, they had just killed uh, the men who had raped their sister. But there was a third reason. It, it says, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. In other words, God is patient to a point, and when the sins reach a certain point, he brings judgment. And so Paul says, but the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Now this is a, a present tense, and so, uh, I mean an aorist tense, and so people uh, aren't really sure what to do with this, because they say an aorist tense, it's like the judgment has already come upon them. Well, at this point, no judgment had come upon them. There's nothing that has come upon them. Well, some say, well, this was finished in AD 70 when, when the Romans wiped out them out. 
But it seems that as he speaks here, he, he is, he's using this kind of as the same thing when we, 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 said, we talked about in Romans 8, where you, you're glorified. It's as if you are already glorified. It's a, it's a sure thing. And it seems he is saying here in that same idea, it's like the wrath is already set. It's already ready. It's done. You can't avoid it at this point. It is the wrath of God. It is the wrath that comes when Christ returns and ultimately judges unbelievers. And he says, there, th- this wrath is set. It's as good as done. The cup is full and I will come and I will judge. And so their rejection has ended in the settled indignation of God. His holiness cannot coexist with sin in any form. It is God's wrath is his holy hatred of the unholy. It is his righteous indignation at everything that is unrighteous. And we could say this, his wrath, listen to this, is not him losing his temper, it's not vindictive bitterness, it's not uncontrolled rage, but the wrath of righteous reason and holy law. And he says, this is, what's, this is their fate. The rejection of the word of God has ultimately left to the point where now they have the wrath of God and it is set upon them and their, their sins are full. They have seen the full Messiah, they have seen everything of his ministry and his evidences and now they sit in the rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ and there is wrath to come. And far and everyone who rejects the word of God who does not have the word of God in their life this is exactly where it leads. And you say to me but I'm not actively persecuting anyone. I, I'm not going out and I'm not, you know, uh, preventing the word of God. You don't have to be extreme in this, right? All you have to do is reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And rejecting him, you start to live a life that's not an imitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not an imitation of, of godly leaders or godly people. You are, you are imitating the world and its values. And by doing that, you are bringing wrath on yourself. Because if you're not an imitator of the Lord Jesus Christ and his followers, then you are a follower of Satan. And you will, you will become an imitator of him. And that will bring wrath upon him. Whether it goes to the extremes where you are actively hostile to the truth or simply rejecting it. Either way, the outcome is the same. And so today, this is how we know whether we're saved or not. This is how we know if the word of God is working. Is it working in my life that I'm an imitator that makes me willing to suffer for the truth? Or am I one of those who just like the parable of the sower where it springs up, but when trouble comes, we disappear. And as we look at our lives, who are we imitating? Do we look like the world? Or do we look like the Lord Jesus Christ? 
And so this morning, we can know that we are saved. And the challenge is this morning, examine your heart. Am I an imitator of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or I'm an imitator of the world? Then you'll know what your destiny is. The question always comes back to, who do you say the Lord Jesus Christ is? I hope today that you will see him for who he is, that you will accept his finished work on the cross, that you will beg for him to grant you repentance, to forgive you of your sins, to call upon him, and that you might know him and love him and glorify him. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this illustrations of those who receive the word and those who reject. And I pray that we would be those who would know that we have received the word of God. And that we might be those who are continually allowing the word of God to perform its work in us. And that we might create a culture that is separate from the world. And the natural response is to act like our Savior, that we might imitate those who imitate you, and that we might be, that we might be pleasing to you. I pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen.